0: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. From the stories of the past and the fiction writers of the future, the Mutual Audio Network presents Mutual Book Club. Welcome everyone, I'm Jack Ward. Please feel free to snack on the scones or the fruit on the table over there. I think there's still some muffins left there as well. Today is our first meeting of the Mutual Book Club, and we will be presenting full novels by chapter at times. But we're also looking forward to present short stories and poems, both classics from the public domain, but as in today's case, a more recent writer. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. David Alt, who is reading my own short story, Witch Hunter a tale that takes place in the 19th century in a fantastic setting with a protagonist who hunts the strangest of game. So, without further ado, I present to you Mr. David Alt. Hi there, and thanks for listening to Witch Hunt. I'm Jack J. Ward, the author of this story, and the host of the Sonic Society at sonicsociety.org, the world's showcase of modern audio drama, and the creator of Electric Vicuna Productions at evicuna.com. This short story is read to you by my good friend and brilliant actor, David Alt. For more information on my fiction, please go to jackjward.com for updates to new stories and book releases. Enjoy.
1: Witch Hunt, written by Jack J. Ward. When Leopold Grayson walked up to me in the foxwood, I was in the least of my good moods. One look at his companion made me even less receptive. My Guinness was barely quaffed, and the carefully groomed gentleman's appearance, mixed with that fiery red handlebar moustache, screamed bureaucracy. Alex, uh, Mr. Hunt, Grayson asked a little hesitantly, his nose twitched. I knew what that meant, and I cared nothing for it. Arrested was the Foxwoods' regular pub gossip. All-asundry glared at the stranger duo at the antler-adorned entrance. In a moment, though, the surprise abated, and the room took a collective puff on pipes and sips from spirits and ales. Listening intently, the Foxwood patrons leaned languidly, hoping to witness an impending beating. Now, Mr Grayson, Leo... "'I believe I've been exceedingly clear as to the subject of addressing me in public.' "'My lips tugged at a smile, but I resisted. "'I wasn't that angry yet, and Grayson was not a dolt to push the issue. "'Or was he?' "'Mr. Hunt,' he continued looking down at his shoes, "'figuring that a gesture of acquiescence might allow him to continue. "'I relaxed my grip on the glass mug and let it sputter to the bar. "'Mr. Chambers, has need to speak with you,' Let Mr. Chambers find me during office hours. There was a slight tittering at the back, quickly silenced by a more seasoned ale guzzler. But but you don't have office hours, Grayson said, almost to himself. I lifted the mug's handle to my lips and turned back to my beverage. That does sound troublesome, I said. Chambers thumbed the bowler's hat between his hands and cleared his throat. England has need of your he coughed once, "'special gifts, Mr. Hunt.' "'I took another drink of the Guinness. "'It was particularly warm and slid down thickly. "'Wilson, the American, claimed beer ought to be cooled. "'He was a barbarian, and while I run with barbarians, "'I take special pains not to join them.' "'Her Majesty,' Chambers said, and then, as if a coil sprung in his voice-box, "'blurted mid-sentence, "'God save the Queen! Ask for you in person!' "'Go to a pub in England or any of her colonies and yell, "'God save the Queen,' and you'd expect a response of equal passion, "'albeit sometimes vitriolic, but nevertheless a response "'where every able-bodied son of the isle would raise a glass in salute. "'Any pub but Foxwoods, where Alexander Hunt was imbibing.' "'I turned, the long slouch of my soldier's hat angled up my creased brow. "'Let her buy the drinks,' I said. "'She owes a round.' "'Of course,' Chambers nodded. The man's face blanched, eyes two faded blue quartz frozen in pink marble orbs. He looked a wreck, waiting to fall apart at the worn joints. Trembling hand raised to the barkeep, he faltered. Whatever he wants. Chambers reached for a handkerchief and dabbed his long forehead. Well, this was the life I chose. I turned back to the bar and finished the guinea with a single swallow and slammed the mug home. Pull up a chair full of troubles, I said. The Foxwood pub collectively gave a settled sigh of both relief and disappointment. Taverniers in all corners turned back to their mates. Atmospheric conversations mixed shadows and pungent air as patrons continued the very serious task of getting stoned past silver. Grayson settled first on the stool, tipped his mug to the bartender and twisted the end of his moustache. "'Stat!' he called, much more at ease. Only one thing left to be settled. The price.' Chambers, still on the Queen's clock, didn't sit, but thrummed the wooden surface beside Grayson nervously. He set his bowler on the bar for a moment, and then picked it up again. "'We've had some bad business in Whitehall,' he said. I waited until my glass was filled once more. "'One that confounds Scotland Yard.' "'Indeed,' Grayson responded. "'And he's a fellow who's only to be caught with the nose of a witch-hunter.' The second Guinness flowed nearly as easily as the first down my gullet. "'Go on,' I said." the glass rattled the counter for more. Chambers looked faint. The topic may well have included how best and how cheaply he'd sell his soul. He leaned between Grayson and me, leathery skin shining in the torchlight. It was the night before last. Mr. Hunt requires only the facts, Mr. Chambers, Grayson clarified. It is amazing how reputation alone creates advocates. Um. The man swallowed. He took a quick jolt of his mug, bit through the stout, and wiped the remnants on the back of his pearl-trimmed cuffs. "'There's a creature,' he said. "'Goblin, we thinks,' Grayson cut in. I turned my head. He stepped back from the counter. His hands trembled with excitement. "'So it's a bag you'll be needing,' I said. Chambers looked confused. His eyes darted back and forth between Grayson and myself.' Somewhere in the distance, a foxwood pair of patrons argued about the latest news from the colonies. A new race of savages, if I heard right. Not really sure. About what? I asked. Chambers' lips pursed tightly. We just assumed the creature was a heap. I suppose. His voice trailed off for a moment before I interrupted. No, a bag. In that I meant that it's to be snatched and bagged for Scotland Yard. Bureaucrats came thicker than ale. "'See, if and twere a dwarf.' "'I'm well aware what we do with dwarves, Mr Grayson,' Chambers said. His voice carried a terseness that caught the attention of the pub. I waited. The moment passed, and a belch from a table against the wall refocused feebled wits. The din slowly began again. Dwarves were a commodity the Queen could ill afford to lose. They smelled out precious metals, gold, silver, even minerals like diamonds.' Any time a squat little man popped up in London, the word was to bring them in alive. Boxed up like cattle, dwarves get shipped to the mines of Africa. All for remuneration to pay for crimes against the crown. Although officially abolished in 1833, unofficial slavery offered great wealth for the crowns of Europe. Who knew what the Asiatic did? But all Christendom held the creatures tightly under thumb, since Sir Walter Raleigh's culling. Word had it that while the Queen had a score or so in her service... Three times that number could be found in the employ of the King of Russia. That, of course, was England's problem. In the age of empires, they couldn't afford a fairy folk gap between nations. Enter the Witch Hunters. I knew of a few others the Crown employed. Toughened, brine-sweated sailors with faces like old leather pouches. Vagabonds who earned their scars and misery in the Crimea during long-drawn-out war. I cut my teeth on the exotics in the Indian Uprising when Cambridge was Commander-in-Chief. By the beginning of the Ashanti War, I lost my taste for the worlds beyond England. Luckily for me, worlds within England needed taming. Hidden worlds. My job was to keep them ever thus. I listened to Chambers sputter on. We might just as well chalk up the sightings as vagrants or perverts, Chambers said, adjusting his collar. If it wasn't on account of the children. I turned on my stool and read his face. We've lost almost half a dozen street urchins in less than a day. "'Welsh Mines,' I said. "'It was well known that cheap labour could be bought with a lead pipe in a darkened alley. "'Children didn't even need lead across the noggin.' "'Chambers shook his head and replaced the bowler on the counter surface. "'Wiping his forehead with a spotted handkerchief, he replied, "'We've eliminated that possibility.' "'I sneezed violently enough to shift my cap.' "'Are you well, Hunt?' Chambers asked suspiciously. "'Well enough,' I said. "'It's just a miserable cold.' "'Dratted night to be out in a dank pub?' Chambers placed a hanky covering his mouth as he spoke. "'Works best if you kill it with ale,' I responded, "'draining half before wiping away the froth. "'So you'll find him, Mr. Hunt,' Grayson broke in. "'I'll secure your child snatcher if it's still in Whitehall.' Chambers handed a folded wad of notes. Grayson intercepted it, hand pressing down on Chambers. "'Don't non insult Mr. Hunt, if you'll please.' "'But I thought the agreement was—' "'The money's for Grayson,' I said. "'Finder's fee.' "'More like soldiers' danger pay,' Grayson drew his hand back, pound-notes disappearing in his ragged coat. Chambers was nonplussed. "'And what do you want, Mr. Hunt?' "'Diamond,' I said, and held up my fist. Half the size. "'Diamond, but—' "'Half the size,' I repeated. No larger. "'If it's more than two inches or less than an inch and a half, I can't use it. "'And make sure it's square-shaped.' Chambers frowned. "'You have an expensive mistress.' "'I smiled. "'The most expensive there is, and she's a mite nasty when she wants to be.' "'I opened my jacket. "'Beneath the lining, Annabelle rested, holstered. "'I drew her by the carved stock, "'her thick, smoky barrel tinged lightly against the edge of the bar. "'What kind of carbine is that?' Chambers whispered. "'Lightning blunderbuss. "'An Eastern European inventor provided it to me. "'Mr. Hunt trades in wages,' Grayson said. "'No coin of the realm for my services,' I said. "'It's a rule.' "'Chamber's eyes narrowed again, looking down at Annabelle. "'A diamond's a costly trade.' "'It one costly problem, or you wouldn't be here. "'Of course, if you feel your bobbies are up to the task, then—' "'I pressed from my stool, reholstered Annabelle, "'and downed the beer in one swift motion. "'Evening, gentlemen.' "'Grayson gave Chambers the eye and a quick shake of his head. "'The government man stood between the door and my exit. "'I've been instructed to provide you whatever you need, Mr. Hunt.' "'He drew a breath in, releasing it in a measured, pained burst.' "'Payment will be prepared.' "'I'll look for it when I bring the goods to Scotland Yard tonight,' I said, "'and touched the brim of my hat, heading for the door. "'Not quite out of earshot, but certainly far enough past most mortal hearing,' "'Chambers said to Grayson, "'I hope he bathes by then.' "'Grayson replied even more quietly, "'Not bathing's the only way it'll not smell him coming, sir. "'Most of them know his scent.' he masks it.' "'Most of them?' Chambers queried. "'The door slammed behind me, "'and I was welcomed into the dank air of London's fog "'without hearing Grayson's reply.' "'I sniffed quietly. "'The air was all wrong. "'London's mist rolled in like dew in the heathers, "'but tonight's clouded streets pressed sandbags against my chest. "'I missed the foxwood, drowning my cold in drink.' The wide hearth at the end of the bar dried even the most dampened vagabond of the city's pea-soup dank. I crouched to one knee on the tiled rooftop, balancing myself in my line of sight. The sky threatened drizzle. I suppressed coughing when I could, giving instead a harrowing half-mad bark. A job was a job. Below, the usual parade of night vendors sold aging wares from creaky wheeled carts. A scattering of listing lost souls, half in the bag, wandered aimlessly amidst the glossy cobblestones. A lamplighter wended his way like a sad, winged moth, replacing oil in the bald street lanterns. At one past three I examined my pocket watch. Pubs all over London would expel the night folk. Coal-black, top-hatted gentlemen exited the street in tandem, in a precise signal for a moonlight walk. Even Foxwood would close for the night. At this hour the tap of hardened heels and the bitter snippets of conversation mixed liberally with the splash of offal out of windows and doors to London streets below, chamber pots and patrons emptying into the dark. I wiped my mouth and nose, and eyed another rooftop that would make a better refuge from the light wind coming in from the sea, but was loath to lose my cat-pigeon seat overlooking the busiest parts of Whitehall. Then I saw it. At first, it looked only to be a trick of the flickering lamplight, slouching through darkened corners of the street like a wayward shadow, but soon enough I could ken its true shape as it slid around tattered refuse shoved against brick walls. Its skin was an unhealthy mustard green that shifted between sharpened bone joints like a leathery amphibian left too long upon land. Its head was a triangled wedge starting wide from the topper and tapering downwards to the street. Gnarled eyebrow-sockets looked like calcified rope trailing to the short, bruised nub of a nose. The chin was as sharp as an axe-blade, and the neck swivelled at times, almost entirely around like the bald socket of an owl. Just like an owl, its eyes were equally wide, barely pinkish with an almost sickly-fungal yellow iris and no discernible pupils, at least from my vantage. Its shovel-like hand sprouted six fingers that were splayed about haphazardly on the appendage, Each digit bent forwards and backwards with equal dexterity, ending at a sharpened point. I could see all this with a monocle of merce which brought the distant as if I could reach out and touch it. As queer as the creature's hands were, the extra-jointed forearms that ran below what would be its knees looked even more so as it rolled to and fro, but what I was most unprepared for was the extra arm— A third appendage, the exact same length and appearance of the other two, wavered back and forth from the middle of its chest, seemingly testing, tasting the air. This monster was no goblin. Its flat feet sploshed wetly along the street bricks far more loudly than it rathered, as it moved tremulously away from the docks. I slowly withdrew my chain cannon from my rucksack, double-checking the charge by the twilight of the moon. Much longer than a lightning stick, it had but one shot. Yet that was almost assuredly enough. I lined the scope down the wide barrel and took a slow, weasened breath in, suppressing another cough. The thing hesitated, now almost in full view. The creature also sported a third leg. It balanced, like resting on a stool as it smelled the wind. Was this some sort of Formorian or Minor Titan? I had never heard of this type of troll. Was this creature relegated to the outskirts of a fevered dream? Steadying the sights, I caught my breath halfway and squeezed the trigger. The cannon fired loudly, charge and smoke spread across the grey night, spreading bat-like, taking immediate flight. The chain, taking shape, spread and encircled the beast, but it was not so easily caught unaware. Reacting immediately, all three arms struggled against the fine-linked trap. The anchor chains constricted tightly, clacking segments into their naturally retracted state. The tiny squares, elven steel threads, glinted off the feeble light. The creature rolled helplessly from the shadows and into the main fairway. A high-pitched wail like the tired clarion from a terrified old man pierced the night. Even from my distance, the clamour skewered my eardrums and jangled my bones painfully. I had to work fast, or its terrible din would arouse all Christendom from bed and inflame the entire city. I monkeyed my way down the roof and hit boots solidly upon the cobblestones. The caterwauling ceased. I feared the chain-net had killed the beast before I had ascertained its origin. That happened twice before. Fairies are extremely fragile. I made swift foot around the wall to inspect first-hand where it had been incapacitated. What I saw was impossible. The net was now bright orange and smoking in spots, as if tossed in a dwarven forge. Parts of the chain-trap had melted away, and the daggered screams of the creature returned, this time from where the metal seared upon its leathery skin like criss tattoos. I was halfway to the beast when it had slipped the last of its bonds. The net sank to the stone walk, a ruined, melted mass. The air was acrid like a steam blast of sulphur. The thing took no time to contemplate freedom. Raising all three arms above its head, all three legs stiffened in opposing yet relative positions. It tilted to its side, like a rogue coach wheel screaming down a mountainside. The monstrosity shot off through the streets, picking up steam. Impossibly, its head remained facing outwards without rotating, as its body tumbled around it again and again. I have never seen a more queer and unsettling sight, arms and legs acting as crooked spokes and splayed hands absorbing the shock of the street. A yellowy-green-grey blur shot across the cobblestones, first with the speed of a donkey, and then like that of a colt, gaining impossibly even more steam. I left the ruined net behind, setting a fine pace in the wake of the creature's sprint. The wheel thing spun purposefully through the streets and alleys until I thought I would at last lose sight of it but it bounced up the curb and hammered against a gate. Stopping and writing itself effortlessly from the disc and back to full height, I saw it reach into a flesh pocket somewhere by, uh, what would be a man's spleen, and pulled out what seemed to be a triangular pistol. The beast fired once against the cold iron of the grill. Hardened metal transmuted to feckless smoke. The wisps held their shape only a moment before the creature leapt through, scattering where once was a solid barricade, but now a steamed opening with melted points. The sulphuric smell itched at my already congested lungs, and I choked out a cough, despite myself. I skidded to a stop against the trunk of a tree that shadowed the cemetery boundaries. My intrigue deepened. I knew of no curiously formed ogre or bullywog or sprite from any of the four distinct fairylands that snuck into Britain. Nor were we in the season of imps or hupplepucks. I reached for my lightning stick instinctively, craning around the tree bark. I remembered too late that Annabelle wouldn't spark for me without a diamond rock in her energy chamber. A cold breath-trail smoked out in the grave air as I reholstered her. It was high time for problem-solving. I reasoned that the creature's nose was not as well-tuned as my own, nor was its hearing equal to the task. If it sensed me, it made no effort to display an alarm. Instead, it looked back from where it fled, head turned fully backwards, wide eyes scanning forward before rotating slowly in all directions. I skittered out, using the shadows, and slunk against another grave-marker, holding my breath. "'Palm on engraved stone, I remained conscious of vapour trails "'that might waft and give away my position. "'I felt it move, skittering stones as it lumbered at a staggered gait. "'I steeled myself against possible discovery. "'I removed my brimmed hat and peeked from the lowest position "'I could muster clinging to the wet grass. "'The creature made its way to the other side of the graveyard, "'threading through the markers as if avoiding thorny bushes. "'What was its purpose? "'Did it plan to feed on corpses?' "'Slowly I became aware of a translucent, ghostly glow "'generating about the atmosphere of the boneyard. "'The beast loped beyond my sight again, "'past a long, high-walled mausoleum. "'I heard the rustle of ivy as the thing blundered along the aged stone. "'It was not good at manoeuvring in tight spaces. "'With lots of room it could speed off a living wheel, "'but among the stone thickets it had trouble moving laterally quickly. "'There might have been an advantage in that.' I took a moment glancing on either side of the monument, and then leaned against it, looking for a better vantage point. I reasoned that if it burst fire, either from an appendage or some weapon, then perhaps it was vulnerable to cold. I felt for the case in the lower left pocket of my coat. My hands grasped the item, feeling the light metal hinge open at my touch. The bluish iridescent glowed low to the ground so as not to alert my quarry. The blade snapped silently together in four pieces. A small film of hoar tempered the seams." The bluish iridescent glowed low to the ground so as not to alert my quarry. The blade snapped silently together in four pieces, a small film of hoarfrost tempering the seams. The hilt, another three pieces, this time treated oxbone, slid perfectly into place, creating my less-than-a-yard-of-northern-steppe sword. Luckily, the eerie glow through the graveyard hid the ice-blue pulse of my blade, and I wrapped the assembled chilled weapon under the flaps of my hideskin coat. A quick glance to make sure the coast was clear and I pounced briskly from stone to stone, shortening the distance, eldritch light drifting a milky blue across the tombs. I would meet this beast face to face to stop it. I entertained no more thoughts of capture. Chambers would have to be content with its wedge-shaped head for queen and country. Squashed against the edge of a charnel house, I pulled the rim of my hat down to diminish both my flesh's paleness and my eye's reflection. I heard a strange whine coming from either side of where the monster disappeared. It began softly but grew in drones more loudly. I feared some engine burned too hot from excess coal, or perhaps pressure gauges were spiking dangerously to an explosion. Certainly the piercing whine was building in some form of crescendo. I paused at a headstone just by my quarry. My hand moved aside a sprig of ivy to see a most wondrous sight. Just beyond, in what looked to be a gully dug for a mass grave, sat a metallic object about the shape of an egg settled sideways. Its shell was equally smooth, and I could not ascertain welded rivets or platelets on any part of its structure. The metal was impossibly perfect, as if it had been dropped in the charnel pit by a great metallic bird, left to glow and hum by the darkness of corpses. It was marred only by what looked to be three pod-like legs. They curled up, spent, like a late autumn spider around the egg. The appendages were metal but had no apparent joints. I could only imagine the tensile strength needed to effectively curl them without seams. Like a boiled meal spilled from a pot, ugly mottled light hung about the object. The creature appeared then from around the side, one shovel-like hand pressed against the metal surface. An edgeless and unseen sectioned door, like a lowered proboscis, fell from the egg and showed a bitter jade-lit interior. "'Its machine was small, and yet it was certainly meant to contain the creature, "'a kind of chair-like pedestal settled in its centre. "'Scattered about it octopus-like hung rubbery tubes with sharpened ends, "'as befit a surgeon's nightmare. "'The creature made motions to board the vessel, surely to escape. "'I knew that this would be my last crack at detaining the monster. "'I waited a breath as the creature turned to enter the craft. "'I gripped Jarl's blades half tightly, my fingers frosted as I leapt towards the creature.' Whether it was the slight rustle of grass or the burning cold of the blade, or a whiff of impending danger, the creature's head pivoted while I was in mid-leap. With unearthly speed it scuttled, sidestepping my attack as my blade descended in its final arc. The sword skittered across the metal surface of the alien transport in a spray of icy sparks. With a flash, I felt something like a hoof hit my jaw. It was one of the three shovel-like hands. Nails like talons tore at my cheek and left a flap of skin. It was only my quick flinch that had saved my throat from being cut into a gory smile. I fell awkwardly on one boot, but spun to correct my trajectory and reversed the blade back towards the thing. Three hands and three feet were readied for the attack, and the palm of something like a bone encased in the body of a jellyfish hit me squarely in the chest. I saw its third arm lift the heat-ray pistol, and alarms rang soundly in my head. If I could not disarm it, I could very easily be a puff of smoke blown off in the wind as the gate had. I crammed my free elbow at its head, crunching the toothless mouth and hopefully nose. The beast staggered, feet cutting into the soft soil, its pink orbs fluttered in all directions. It focused so alien an expression, I couldn't tell if the independently moving eyes were stunned or measuring all things in its immediate vicinity." The propped middle leg behind it kicked at the dirt and propelled the creature back towards me. I tasted copper, realising later the source of which was a trail of blood trickling down my cheek into the corner of my mouth. My chest ached like a quarter horse had bucked me, but I steadfastly held on to Jarl's blade. Both independent eyes locked back as one, bone brows narrowing upon me. A piercing noise that would have drawn blood from a deaf man's ears squealed from inhuman lips, and it launched at me from all three legs. I fainted back and propelled forward to it, trying to gain an inch in the fray. The frost blade howled on my chilled grip, certain to split the thing at the sternum, but it clapped two hands across the flat of the sword, slowing the momentum to cut but only a thin line across its midsection. The third hand struggled, grasping my head to cut my face on my own weapon. Jellied fingers knocked off my hat and tore at my hair, muscling my head closer to the jagged tip. The blade's cold mingled with the stench of its breath in my lungs as it pushed harder. I choked and spluttered, coughing. Driving my knee in what I hoped would be some vitals in a space between the three legs, I heard a wet crunch. Luckily, the revolving socket which universally manipulated the trio of legs was vulnerable, and the creature vomited an oily mustard paste across my cheek. It burned my eyes and the wound as it ran down my chin. The creature flailed, tottering backwards as if from some great height. It landed horizontally again and tensed all six appendages, spinning and tumbling towards its destination, the opened maw of the egg. It easily mounted the ramp and broke its form, settling like a wilting flower in the seat. The machine's metal tongue withdrew. Instantly steam coursed, billowing from the craft like morning dew in a spring heat. The egg vibrated and whined impatiently, the pitch rising impossibly. Each moment produced a noxious clamour between my ears and bones. I struggled to my feet just as all three mechanical pod legs shifted firmly off the ground. I stumbled as the ground shook with the impact of the hovering, high-pitched droning ship. The sound morphed my senses in that I found difficulty in judging distances. The mausoleum and charnel-house stretched and yawed before me, as if caught in rough seas. I stumbled, seeking to put distance between the egg and myself. My eyes peeled against the sound, ears raged, my very skin shaking like a farm boy at a bathhouse. Somehow, I do not know by what power, I found the wall of the mausoleum and threaded my way past the ivy and around the other side, just as the egg broke from the earth and scorched like the fires of hell heavenward. I fell gasping, holding my ears that rang for hours, staring into the bleak black night. The stars in London are lonely things, blocked out by the great black stalks of industry that never ceased chugging towards the twentieth century. But the egg was now one of those few bright stars raised in the sky— its path trailing beyond the farthest reach of anything earthbound, of any mortal man. It was only when the morning birds had begun to sing that I had found myself able to move again. The rent on my face had stopped bleeding, the flap of my cheek stuck back in place, though I'd need a good leech to sew it more properly. My chest wheezed less from the cough and more from cracked ribs. I shuffled painfully to the sight of the monster's disappearance, and saw only a dark stain and the bone hilt of my ice blade. Some extraterrestrial force had shattered the frost giant's weapon, and it melted back to the elements. Back at the Foxwood before mid-morning, I reported to Chambers. Grayson wheedled around him like a starving ferret. I was at a loss nearly all the way round. Only Grayson had profited from the deal. I left him there and walked with Chambers, knocking on the wood frame of the pub door twice, just below where I nailed spring-heeled Jack's cloven hoof. "'Luck!' Chambers asked, unamused. "'Looks like I'm in need of some,' I mumbled. Chambers nodded quietly, and we walked through London's aromatic filth that burned the eyes. There was a hint of a sprinkling of rain to come. I had hoped it would rain harder tonight. Damned cold or not, I couldn't get the smell of that alien beast out of my nose. "'There's a word of a man,' began Chambers. "'Some say he's the result of some terrible science experiment.' I nodded quietly. "'Go on.' It poured that night. "'and I had made plans to travel to Scotland on the next train. "'I saw chambers only once more. "'Low-level bureaucrats are as interchangeable as rank-and-file infantry. "'But he did write often with various inquiries as to my skill against the strange and extraordinary. "'I was out in the Balkans tracking a most unique herd of horses when I heard of their return. "'The whole world had. "'They fell from the sky like apples shaken from trees.' Everywhere they landed, the creatures from the stars, some said from Mars, took the world like an unrelenting storm. On top giant tripods, their heat rays blasted and made rubble of some of the greatest achievements that took mankind centuries to erect. All gone. Gone in a matter of days. I made my way against the flow of those who fled the urban byways. My horse surged towards the mecca of the Towers of London. I arrived just after the storm broke, only to see the carnage of what was left behind. When I came to the public houses, I pushed aside the tattered remains of a gate and found Chambers in his office, writing furniture and picking up papers, upset by the mob that had burst through sometime during the raid the night before. "'Hunt,' he said most soberly. "'I half expected you'd be here. Then you know what I've come for, sir. Perhaps you'd best state your intentions.' Chambers straightened his own chair and sat behind his desk, the wood creaking under his weight. "'The Martian,' I said, leaning across his desk. I tossed down the morning paper. Splashed across the front page with the large letters, "'Invasion Cancelled Due to Cold.' In smaller type, the article described that world scientists agreed that it was something as simple as the common cold that lay low the alien attackers. "'If you'll remember,' I said, stabbing the front page with my finger, "'their scout that I sent packing.' faced me when I was afflicted. Let me stop you right there, Mr. Hunt, Chambers said. He leaned back, pressing his thumbs in his vest pockets, straightening his collar and tie. Chambers leaned forward again, removing his reading glasses from the bridge of his nose to the desk in one smooth motion. Are you saying that the actions of an agent of the Crown, an agent that can never be acknowledged, infected a visitor from the Red Planet, perhaps the first, the result of which drew us into confrontation? Caused a confrontation? I raised my voice. I had started a few fights in my time and had little difficulty taking credit. A global fracas was quite beyond my best intentions. By infecting an alien with an earth-born malady that may well have been passed fatally to the entire Martian homeworld. I closed my mouth and took a slow breath. Chambers continued. "'A disease that might have been construed as smallpox in a blanket to the entire Martian populace, "'leading to a devastating counterattack, "'Or worse still, they may have come conquering to find a cure,' I finished tight-lipped. "'And ran out of time doing so,' Chambers nodded. "'He looked unblinkingly with those black bureaucratic eyes. "'My jaw clicked under the tension. "'Many a day's ride to London, and again I was coming up empty-handed. "'I rose and pulled at the paper.' Chambers kept his hand pressed down on it, keeping us both in place. Such an agent, were he to exist, might be an embarrassment to Her Majesty and in danger of being uh, removed. I nodded. Good thing neither of us know such an agent. Chambers smiled wanly and removed his hand. I took the paper back and rolled it under my arm. Chambers replaced the glasses on the bridge of his nose and smiled thinly. Pleasure to see you again, Mr. Hunt, he said. I know where to find you, should we have need. He started to shift through the papers on his desk, and I slipped out of sight. I had begun to wonder if the Martians didn't have the better deal after all. But how deadly, indeed, could a cold germ be? If it developed its own bureaucracy...
0: The Mutual Book Club Available on any of the Mutual Audio Days The Mutual Fiction Podcast Feed And the Mutual Audio Network Feed Thanks to the reader for today's performance And please look for more classic tales And future writers next time At the Mutual Book Club